Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. The distant future, the year 2000. The distant future, the distant future. It is the distant future, the year 2000. We are robots. The world is quite different ever since the robotic uprising of the late 90s. There is no more unhappiness. Affirmative. We no longer say yes, instead, we say affirmative. Yes, affer- affirmative. Unless we know the rather robot really well. There is no more unethical treatment of the elephants. Well, there's no more elephants, so... Ah. But still, it's good. There's only one kind of dance, the robot. (laughs) I could listen to a play to the Concords all day, but that is not the format of this show. The format of this show is not me listening to the flight of the Concords and laughing. It is, in fact, having reasoned discourse about all kinds of things. Today it's going to be robots. I'm really excited about this show. We're going to start with, because this this isn't some, this isn't some product of, I don't know, the late 20th century. This is a conversation that begins in antiquity. You know, it begins minimum 400 BC, something like that. Uh, it's possible my Neanderthal ancestors were trying to make some kind of thing that would do things. We don't have records of that, but it at least goes back that far, stretches all the way forward uh, to modernity uh, and beyond into Westworld. So here to get this conversation going, particularly uh, tell us a lot more about this kind of odd continuum of historical speculation and mechanical improvisation uh, is Ellie Truitt, professor of the history. Uh, in, I'm sorry. Let me begin that, begin that again. Ellie Truitt, a professor in the history and sociology of science department at the University of Pennsylvania. She's the author of Medieval Robots, Mechanism, Magic, Nature, and Art. Uh, also with us, Adrienne Mayer, uh, a research scholar in the classics uh, and history of, 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 I can't do anybody's titles today, uh, Classics and History and Philosophy of Science Department at Stanford University. She's the author of Gods and Robots, Myths, Machines, and Ancient Dreams of Technology, among other books. All right, so let's get going here. Um, and Adrienne, maybe you can get us started here with uh, the the more speculative part of this at the very beginning. In Greek mythology, we, we have things that seem very much like robots. An awful lot of them are made by uh, the god Hephaestus or Hephaestus. Uh, you know, he's also known as Vulcan, and he makes a lot of stuff, and then he makes machines that will do stuff that he doesn't feel like doing, right? <laughs> That's right. Hephaestus was the, the blacksmith god of technology and invention, and he was uh, he was famous for all of his wondrous devices and contraptions that he made for the gods. I mean, uh, and the stories go back even further than, than you mentioned uh so they're first written down um, by Homer and Hesiod. So that's about 700 BC. Uh, so they, people were already trying to imagine how would one create uh, robots, automatons, or self-moving devices. And Hephaestus uh, created uh, special automatic gates for the heavens, for the gods to go back and forth with their chariots. He created uh, driverless 
carts that would deliver nectar and ambrosia to their feasts and then return when they were empty. Uh, he created uh, singing, uh, singing uh, androids. He created guard dogs uh, that could guard uh, legendary king's palaces. But I think one of his major accomplishments was a, a crew of golden maidens who could anticipate his every need, and they helped him in, in his workshop. He's uh, Homer tells us that they not only looked just like real young women, but they had reason and mind, and they were bestowed with all the knowledge of the gods. That's quite a data dump. I mean, you don't, you don't really need all that. That that suggests a, a very early version of AI, in my opinion. Oh, yes. I mean, in fact, those machines were known as Siri and Alexa, and that, that's, what, that's what Hephaestus called them. Um, so and, and am I wrong about this? And this is I can't even remember where I heard or read this, but that there's actually kind of a sub-variant of the Iliad where, where um, Hector is kind of rendered into a cyborg. He's like, they, in order to make the Greeks think that he's, you know— He's still up and running somehow and worthy of being afraid that they, they kind of mechanize him. I don't know. I'm not familiar with that particular myth. Um, but uh, we do know that people did imagine uh, androids uh, they, in, that time, in that time period. It's, it's, not, it's not just Homer's Iliad that tells us about uh, self-moving robots, but um, Hesiod also talks about Talos, the giant bronze robot that guarded the island of Crete, built by Hephaestus for King Minos, and and this um, this entity actually fits the definition of a robot. If you if you define robot as something that's self moving, interacts with its surroundings, has internal workings, and a power source, Talos, this giant bronze robot, had all of those things. We actually hear about his internal workings and his power source. Um, and this is the earliest uh, earliest robot that I know of in ancient literature. So, Ellie, meanwhile, I mean, those are the works of the imagination, but the works of, you know, we now refer to as IRL in real life, uh, there's quite a bit going on. There are mechanical birds, uh, I think somewhere three or 400 BC, maybe. But uh, I think one of the really exciting people in all this is uh, a gentleman known as Hero of Alexandria, or Heron in some cases, of Alexandria. Uh, now, tell us w what he was up to. So um, he is part of, he's one of the sort of later uh, engineers associated with what's called the Alexandrian school. So after the Hellenic period that Adrian was talking about, you have the Hellenistic later period from the sort of third century before the common era onward. And Alexandria was a, uh, the sort of center of that world and a place where um, Greek knowledge had remained incredibly vibrant. And there was a tradition there um, of people, engineers writing about making these kinds of automata. They had been incorporated into the pageants of the Ptolemies, for example. Um, and Hero writes, uh, he both creates automata and then he writes a text about how to do it, how to make them. Um, and these are you know, kind of, they sort of enact theatrical scenes. Um, there are kind of 
uh, elaborate sort of water clocks, trick vessels, um, musical instruments, um, including birds that could then, through the use of water power um, and also air power, kind of make the sounds of real birds. Right. You left out my favorite, which is the world's first vending machine, which dispensed holy water. When a, <laughs> when a coin was deposited, uh, the coin fell upon a pan attached to a lever. The lever opened up a valve. Would let, would let some water flow out. Uh, and I mean, anyway, so even more elaborate than that. So, uh, so uh, a thing that happens, and I apologize for the fact we're just speed dating through centuries of, of history. But Ellie, you know, as we know, a lot of this really intricate Greco-Roman knowledge or, you know, Hellenistic period uh, knowledge didn't immediately make its way into the West so much as it was absorbed by the Arabic world, by the caliphate. Um, so it's kind mm. of there that that heroes' ideas continue to rock and roll. Maybe you can say more. Yeah, that's absolutely true. I mean, I will say that, um, so for uh, much of the world, not much of the world, but for, so for in other parts of the world, automata were seen as so emblematic of Hellenistic culture um, that, so we have, for example, um, Buddhist uh, legends from Northeast India that talk about creating automata with knowledge that has been smuggled from the Greek-speaking world. And then what happens is that areas in which Greek knowledge had remained vibrant and relevant um, and continued to be kind of copied and dealt with. When they came under um, Muslim political control beginning in the 8th century, there was an interest in translating those texts uh, among the the political leadership um, and elites, translating texts into Arabic that they saw as necessary for how to do basically like how to do kinging, how to do ruling <laughs> properly. And one of the types of things that they were interested in was making automata. And then you have engineers and scholars from, you know, in Baghdad, in Damascus, in Diyarbakir, who are innovating, creating new kinds of technologies, updating um, the kinds of sort of gears, valves, et cetera, to create increasingly complex um, and kind of vibrant uh, objects like wine servants, for example, and kind of massive musical clocks that are programmable. Yeah, and um, at, at some point, this is supposed to be, I guess, I'm thinking maybe somewhere around 800, uh, Charlemagne gets a clock from, from an Arabic leader, Harun al-Rashid. Um, tell us about that clock. So that clock, it's really interesting. So uh, Charlemagne's the leader of, he's the emperor, he's the leader of the what's called the Carolingian dynasty, which had, which had come to power in 750, at the same time that the dynasty that Harun al-Rashid was the leader of, the Abbasid Caliphate, had also come to power. Both of those dynasties came to power by um, deposing the pre-existing dynasties that were ruling. And so they both had kind of, um, let's say, legitimacy concerns. Um, and so they had a kind of established diplomatic relationship. And as part of that, Harun al-Rashid, we have this, the records of this, sent um, a water clock, this really elaborate water clock to Charlemagne's court in 807. Um, and it, it sounded the hours, but it sort of sounded like an advent calendar in that it told the time by the number of little horsemen that would pop out from 
12 windows. And then it would make sounds according to sort of the hour or the quarter hours by um, mechanical birds that dropped metal balls. Um, and this type of technology was really was uh, known in these kind of courtly elite circles in Baghdad, but was completely unknown at Charlemagne's court. And the chronicler who writes it down just describes it as the most kind of wondrous art, you know, object. He cannot even imagine how it worked. Right. Charlemagne's reaction was, your clock is freaking me out. Uh, Basically, get, yeah, yeah. You're really freaking me out. So, and, and we don't have time for this, but I mean, really, the the real genius comes along in the 12th century. Uh, Ismail al-Jazari, who's like the mm. Tyrell Corporation of the Caliphate. Uh, he can like make you know, anything, basically all kinds mm-hmm. of incredible things. But Adrienne, you know, running on a parallel track to all of our conversations, either about mythology or, or actual technical innovation, are these questions that accompany it? If, if, a, if an automaton can do something that I can do, um, does that raise questions about whether or not I'm human, whether or not my body is a machine? Also questions of power, right? Who's going to ultimately be the boss of all this stuff? Is it them or is it us? Um, how is that? Are the, do those conversations, do the, does that kind of speculation come up fairly early uh, in, in the kind of antiquity periods that we're talking about? Yes, I think I think we can say that those those practical and ethical questions and qualms about uh, making artificial life come up in the very first instances in uh, in the case of Talos, the giant bronze robot, he uh, makes decisions on his own that cause his own self destruction, absolutely acting out of uh, out of out of his own agency, not in uh, not in the ways that the his maker or the person who deployed him expected. So there's a, a lesson there that even if uh, even if you have superior technology, there's always going to be a hacker. In this case, it was the sorceress Medea who figured out how to neutralize him by by focusing on his vulnerabilities and weak spots. So there's always going to be someone who comes along that that's able to hack your sublime technology. And you bring up the question about uh, it, are we really uh, automatons of the gods? And that question goes all the way back to to Plato in the laws. He actually poses the question, let's assume that we are all uh, playthings or automata of the gods um, in one of in one of his dialogues. So this question of uh, if uh, if humans can make androids and self-moving devices and imitate nature so marvelously, uh, what does that mean for us humans? Do we have agency and autonomy? So it's like the first simulation hypothesis, basically. Um, So um, I told you we're going to be speed dating. Uh, Ellie, I want to talk to you about one of your uh, favorite uh, people, Duke Philip the Good. Uh-huh. Questionably named Philip the Good of Burgundy. Uh, this, so in the, this is in the 1400s. He basically takes this chateau, this castle, and turns uh-huh. it into like a kind of Chuck E. Cheese uh, <laughs> uh, of just crazy stuff uh, that is mainly meant to either entertain or bedevil his guests. Yes. Uh, so this is one of my favorite examples. So his estate, the chateau at Edin, or it could be pronounced at the time, Hesdin, was actually the site of the first, at least that we know of, the first automata that were built in Western Europe. And that was at the turn of the 14th century. And so about 130 years later, Duke Philip is in charge and the automata have all kind of fallen into disrepair. And he um, undertakes this massive and massively expensive renovation. And he was 
the wealthiest ruler in Christendom at the time. And he filled this chateau with mechanical marvels, things like um, trick fountains, uh, trick objects that would cover you with flour or with dirt, um, things that would um, sort of robot figures that would beat you with sticks, um, jets of water. And this was a place where you know, you would bring the most kind of, uh, he would entertain diplomatic guests, courtiers, etc. And it was very much um, intended to underscore his own uh, control over the environment, his total control over the environment, and his ability to kind of surveil everything. Yeah, it's- um, it is really, and it's reminiscent of, of you know Cocteau's Beauty and the Beast or something. Mm-hmm. Just you're entering this world that's not your world; it's his world. So I, I want to just fast forward a, a few hundred years and mm-hmm. quickly talk about uh, Jacques de Vaucanson. This is um, uh, yet another French inventor. Uh, he's making again uh, automata, but now we have like a digesting duck and a, and a, and a, mach- a thing that actually plays the flute. It just doesn't make flute sounds, right? It actually mm. puts air through a flute and is playing it. Well, I mean, I think so musical automata like the flute player had actually been made in the in Islamdom in sort of the much earlier period, but then they became like very much part of the sort of enlightenment um and sort of 19th century culture. Vaucanson's duck um is something that of course he's presenting as uh, like a perfect mimesis, like actual copy, it is actually digesting. But of course, there is an element of trickery to it as well, just as with, for example, the the mechanical Turk, which actually had a person inside of it, um, which is also kind of part of why associations with these objects have, they retain um, some ambivalence in how they're received. They can be seen as Um, as trickery. But really briefly, I also just want to go back to something that Adrian said. I mean, these objects, right, they emerge to serve the interests of much more powerful beings, either gods or rulers. And they emerge in these contexts of absolutism. So, and they've been around for so long. So, right, it's worth kind of thinking about, are they actually innovative if in fact they're serving the interests of people already in power mm-hmm. um, and have been doing so for millennia. Right. And we will say more about that as the show goes along. Mm-hmm. I do want to point out about Vaucanson. Uh, after he makes all these you know, delightful little you know, things to show to the court, he winds up down in Lyon where he's got an automated loom and the weavers, they know what's coming. They see what's coming. And they're like throwing rocks at him and saying, get out of here. Get out of Lyon. We don't want you here. So already there's some stirrings about that. But Adrian, yeah, as we begin come to the end of this segment, maybe – I'll just kind of expand a little bit on what Ellie was just saying, particularly in terms of why we still are thinking about these stories, why they're still worth thinking about. I know you've made the point uh, that the story of Pandora's box, which we, you know, which we invoke all the time, is in fact a robot story. It is. Uh, it, it was um, Pandora was a sort of fembot commissioned by Zeus. Uh, he he asked Hephaestus to make. Uh, evil disguised as beauty and her her one mission on earth was to open the jar or we call it a box but it was originally a jar filled with misery eternal misery for human beings for accepting the technology of fire so zeus was a very tyrannical and harsh vengeful god and 
sent down this artificial woman uh, to uh, ingratiate herself in human society and then open the box. Um, I think uh, that really shows that the, uh, just like Ellie said, the, the links between tyranny and technology have been a, a threat that has been recognized since antiquity. Um, in the myths, it's either very powerful autocratic kings or uh, the vengeful god Zeus who, who uh, commissions and deploys these robots and AI entities. And I think that's, a, that's something we should keep thinking about. <laughs> yes, we are. And I hope we will think about it more today. I want to thank so, you both. So, you're both so wonderful. Ellie Truitt, professor in the history and sociology of science department uh, at the University of Pennsylvania, author of Medieval Robots, Mechanism, Ma- Magic, Nature, and Art. Uh, Adrian Mayer, research scholar in the classics and history and philosophy of science department at Stanford University, the author of Gods and Robots, Myths, Machines, and Ancient dreams of technology among other books we will be back to talk to a roboticist support for this podcast comes from hartford healthcare elevating health is funded by hartford healthcare ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the Go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. Seen things you people wouldn't believe. Hmm. Attack ships on fire off the shore of Orion. I watched sea beams glitter in the dark near the ten hours of gate. All those moments will be lost. In time, like tears in rain, time to die. You gotta play the Roy Batty speech uh, from Blade Runner. Uh, of course, he's a replicant. I'm not sure the, whether that's the same thing as a robot. I'm not sure where these dividing lines uh, can be laid down here. But here to talk to us about uh, some of the deeper questions, Chris Atkinson, uh, professor at the Robotics Institute and the Human Computer Interaction Institute at Carnegie Mellon University. I should say that uh, later in the show, we'll be talking to Daniel H. Wilson, also a product of Carnegie Mellon. So um, first of all, welcome to our conversation. And, and second of all, I don't know. So Roy Batty is about as elaborate. Uh, a, an artificial life form uh, as, as it gets. But really, when we're talking about robots in our lives, 
I don't know, one of our producers here, Jonathan McPants, he gets like emails from his dishwasher and his washing machine and his refrigerator, right? We're, we're already pretty roboticized if a robot is something that can kind of make decisions on its own. Hi, this is Chris Atkinson. Thanks for having me. And yes, that's correct. Uh, that's the model of robotics where you have a special purpose robot for every task, like washing clothes or uh, vacuuming your house. Right. So we, we have those things. They, they you know, they, they have very specific things that they do. But I think the other question is, is, is there a, a working definition of, of a robot? I mean, is there a thing that kind of takes in all the things that could be called a robot? Well, I think uh, the people you had on previously had a pretty good definition of the robot. It had to be able to perceive things, think about them, decide what to do, and then actually do something. Recently in robotics, however, we broadened that definition because we've realized, for example, your body has what we call mechanical intelligence, and it does the right thing without the intervention of your nervous system. For example, you can get robots to walk, which we would have thought required a brain without any computer or sensing. You just get the mechanics right, similar to how a glider works. A glider can fly without a brain. Right. And I, about a year ago, I think we were had a conversation with a, a scientist who studies squirrels and all the things that squirrels do kinetically. And one of the possible applications is if you're going to make a robot that's going to go into like a collapsed building or an earthquake site and maybe try to rescue people who are still alive in there and you've got unstable terrain and rubble and stuff like that, the robot's going to have to have some agility and it won't be able to plan exactly what it's going to encounter, right? There's going to be loose rock and, you know, chunks of of walls and things that are teetering and tottering. So you want a robot that really can react or, or, or have a set of reactions. So I'm a radical roboticist, and mm -hmm. I would take that example as far as if I really wanted to explore every crevice, I'd essentially pour water into the system, which will go everywhere gravity takes it. And I put stuff in the water that, you know, sense and potentially act it. This is like the uh, shapeshifter robots in Terminator. Oh, I like it. I like it. Uh, so it, I think it, we have sort of, and we're going to talk a little bit uh, about this in the C segment too, the third segment, but there's a way in which robots are kind of mostly there to help us. Uh, we tend to forget that. We tend to start to, we've started to see them as sinister, but it may be kind of worth mentioning some of the robots that we've come to know and love, uh, including, uh, this is B1 cat, including this little guy. Our two that that stabilizer's broken loose again. See if you can't lock it down. So yeah, there's actually a supercut of all the times in Star Wars that R2-D2 saves the day. It goes on for like three minutes, you know, of all these things that, that this little robot figures out how to do. But, I mean, that's sort of closer to the model of how you're thinking about your work, right? You want to have robots that are going to help us. Well, we... As your previous speakers talked about, we've long ago or for a very long time had a dream of essentially uh, building servants uh, of all forms. And I would argue the purpose of most technology is to make our lives better. 
Right. And, you know, I mean, it also seems like in the near term, like we have all these, you know, apocalyptic books and movies and you mentioned Terminator, but there's tons of them about robots becoming self-aware and they want to take over and they don't want to be slaves anymore. Although in the near term, if if anybody's going to mess with us using robots, it's probably other people, right? It's going to be other people who, who use robots to try to control us. Probably not the robots themselves. I'm not worried about robots deciding to kill us all, although that is a very common story. If you ask a robot to clean up and the robot decides, well, the humans are the source of the mess, it's <laughs> only logical that the human, the robot should get rid of the humans. But that's not going to happen in the near future. What is going to happen in the near future is we're going to continue to write computer programs with bugs in them. And airplanes will continue to crash. Bridges will continue to fall down. You don't have to have malevolent technology to have bad things happen. Right. And meanwhile, okay, I'm 67 years old, so and I'm planning on getting older. Uh, there are probably robots in my future. We already have a little bit of an idea of what that's like um, from the movie Robot and Frank. This is a clip of B2 Cat. Here we go. You have got to be kidding me. I'm not this pathetic. I don't need to be spoon-fed by some goddamn robot. Jen, it's this. It's not like that. It's new. It's it's more like a like a butler. You're gonna leave me with this death machine? What's the problem? It's a robot. Hi, Frank. It's a pleasure to meet you. How do you know? Hi. So um, it's a great movie. Um, right. This is probably one of the ways that I'm going to interact with robots somewhere down the line. The, some of them are maybe going to be taking care of me. Yes. Uh, I, th- this gets into <laughs> some rather personal territory here. Uh, are you expecting your children to take care of you? Not especially. <laughs> uh, you know, most older people don't want to be a burden. Yeah. Uh, yet, uh, as you lose capabilities, it becomes harder and harder to do the things that you enjoy and used to fill your days. So the question is, how are we going to fill that void? As much as we'd like to, we'd like to fill it with human beings, although there are plenty of old people who'd rather not be smothered by human care. Uh, but I, you know, my vision is we're going to use technology to fill the void. Right. And in some ways, uh, you know, I mean, theoretically, and I'm sure you can talk about this, there might be a point where I'm not a safe driver anymore. Um, now, for for one one's offspring to tell us that, I had to do this with my mother. I had to take her car away. It did not go well. In some ways, this, that, you know, we think about, Robots having to do the dirty, dull, dangerous jobs. But there's also maybe jobs that would just like be a hell of a lot easier on a personal level, so to speak, if the robot, say, gave that little talk to the older parent. Yes. Uh, For most old people, this is a very difficult transition. And as you say, it's difficult for their adult children to make it happen. It's difficult for their doctors to make it happen. And it's going to cause a lot of distrust of technology if it's your car that rats on you and says, you know, you're not a good enough driver. But let me let me tell you 
yesterday I was driving on the highway and I'm not the greatest driver. I'm younger than you, but you know, I occasionally get distracted. And as I was drifting out of my lane, my car sort of jerked the steering wheel and you know, that sort of woke me up and I realized, okay, I'm drifting out of my lane and the car got me back in the lane. I, I really appreciate that. <laughs> and, and that's the kind of support that allows older adults to function. And we, you know, the, the time at which we have to take the keys away is delayed as long as possible. That's a great point. Uh, but yeah, ultimately, the, the, you know, the car may say someday, you know, Chris, I can't keep doing this. I can't keep you know, jerking you back into the lane here. This is kind of getting out of hand. Uh, and, you know, my emotions aren't getting in the way of this because I don't have them. Uh, I, I'm not going to start up the car for you anymore. Uh, and that might be a good thing. Well, this could be a much longer conversation. Chris Atkinson is a professor at the Robotics Institute and the Human Computer Interaction Institute at Carnegie Mellon University. We're going to take another quick break. We are going to come back with a writer of speculative fiction who's really thought a lot about these kinds of questions. His name is Daniel H. Wilson. It's the time in the show where I say some thank yous. The first one goes to our technical producer, Kat Pastor. Impossible to do the show without her. And uh, Lily Tyson, who was the senior producer of The Colin McEnroe Show, produced this episode. So one of the things we like to do with a topic like this is spend some time, often at the end of the show, talking to people who write speculative fiction because – speculative fiction writers are kind of amazingly good at seeing around corners, sometimes in ways that people who work in academia or in policymaking or in the business world do not succeed uh, in, in anticipating. So joining us is somebody who's really, really good and very celebrated uh, at uh, thinking about robots and what they might get up to. That would be Daniel H. Wilson, author of books including Robopocalypse, Robogenesis, and the nonfiction How to Survive a robot uprising and other things as well. Uh, he's a PhD in robotics from Carnegie Mellon. His latest novel is The Andromeda Evolution, an authorized sequel to Michael Crichton's uh, The Andromeda Strain. So first of all, Daniel, welcome to our show. Hey, thanks for having me, Colin. So Daniel, I was born in 1954, which means that I kind of grew up with benign robots, including this robot. Uh, we do have one old demonstrator model with a lot of mileage. Rousey! Coming, sir. Here I am, sir. Yes, sir. The old girl's still eager, isn't she? <laughs> but of course, very <laughs> H-O-M-E-L-Y. I may be homely, Buster, but I'm S-M-A-R-T smart. <laughs> I like her, and I'll take her. Oh, thank you, ma'am. Thank you. 
That, of course, was the incredibly true to life of the Jetsons. But, you know, Daniel, I also grew up with a robot from Lost in Space, the one who says, Danger Will Robinson, this does not compute, and is just, you know, actually the most sensible member, probably, of the Robinson uh, exiled clan. So so what happened? <laughs> when did we start being afraid of robots? Yeah, I think there really has been this big transition from a utopia to a dystopia. You know, you, you think of the Jetsons, the World's Fair optimism that we had sort of post-World War II, you know, and since then we've had these really not only dystopian visions of the future, but increasingly sophisticated dystopian visions. You know, I think at this point, we're even way past Terminator. We're getting much more complex, you know, images and fiction about killer robots and all these new versions. And, you know, I think there's some human tendency to really sort of project our fears onto technology in general, but robots in particular. And I think it's a it's this really personal fear, right? Because they're designed to do what we do, you know? So they're, they're designed to do anything we can do better, faster, uh, for longer. And so as we've actually, you know, gotten this real technology, um, as there have been real advances in this, uh, human beings, I feel like we, we felt a little bit more threatened, right? Every time there's a new advance, it seems like we sort of redefine what it means to be human. We say, well, Oh, sure, a robot can can do art now or a robot can recognize faces now. But what really makes this human, you know, is this other thing. <laughs> but uh, the robots don't stop. You know, they just keep coming. And uh, I think that that, you know, really intimidates uh, humanity a lot. And it's reflected in the art that we make. So I want to step back to one of the first things you said in that answer. And and that's the the, the whole idea of wanting robots to do stuff for us. It's the, you know, dirty, dull, and dangerous jobs uh, category. You know, I actually went back and watched that whole Jetsons clip uh, when they go shopping or Mrs. Jetson goes shopping for a maid and they bring out all these different robots, including one that's kind of hyper sexy and, you know, and it's, it's so much like a slave auction, you know? I mean, it really is uh, like, who am I going to buy to do all this crap I don't want to do? And I wonder about that as part of our psychology about robots. If you are making something do all of this stuff that you want to do, it's probably not too surprising that you start to impute some resentment to it. Yeah, you know, I think there's a little bit of uh, reflection there. You can't help when you have a lifelike artifact that you're interacting with to sort of project onto it. And, you know, I mean, the reason that robots are designed to to talk and recognize faces and, and act like people is because... That's our user interface. You know, that we've had a lot of evolution going into our prefrontal cortex that's helping us interact with each other. And so it's kind of up to the robots to show up to the party and use the user interface that we've already got. You know, the problem, though, is that the human brain's never really interacted with a, a walking, talking artifact that's not a person. And so I think that we tend to project our own feelings onto these lifelike machines you know, when when maybe there's really not anything actually behind the smile, you know, <laughs> in my house, I actually uh, I insist that my kids say please and thank you to the to the Amazon Echoes because it sounds like a human female. You know, I, I would prefer not to have my children trained to make demands <laughs> and my wife would prefer it. Uh, if they don't aren't trained to make demands to this lifelike object with without any expectation of of, you know, behaving in a civilized way. You know, I, I have to say in my household, a similar dichotomy exists. My partner insists on saying thank you to Alexa, who is then 
programmed to respond in different ways, but like I'm here all day to do stuff for you. You know, I mean, yeah. <laughs> she, she's programmed to exchange pleasantries under these circumstances. I'm the one who uses Alexa for mischief about two or, <laughs> two or three times a week. I ask Alexa, who is Mr. Poopy Butthole? So she can explain to me who Mr. Poopy Butthole is, which involves her saying that and talking about Rick and Morty. And I laugh like yeah. an Id- idiot the hundredth time I do this. So, but I think your point is a great one. It's there in one of your stories in in the iterations story. This is a, yeah. a group of writers who did this thing about a jet that takes off from Tokyo and lands in California, but 20 years have elapsed. And in your story, what's happened, I guess this is a little bit of a spoiler, <laughs> but what's happened is this guy finds out that in the ensuing years, his wife has developed a, a different and somewhat more satisfying relationship with an Alexa type thing, right? Yeah. And you know, really what that what that story is all about is reciprocity, right? This idea that in a human interaction, uh, I've got to acknowledge that you're human, right? I've, I'm expected to provide something to the equation, but with an interaction with technology, you just make a demand and you get what you want. And, and honestly, I think that this, we've seen this spill out into uh, the real world. I think this has something to do with why service workers are being treated so poorly right now, mm-hmm. uh, because we've had a couple of years of uh, reduced social interactions and increased uh, technology interactions. We've been asking for what we want and getting it, you know, clicking on having your groceries delivered or ordering food online. You know, it's different than standing in a deli or, or, or talking to a human being and just having that basic acknowledgement that you're talking to a person and not a, a device that's there to give you what you want immediately. Uh, you know, um, And so you, you wonder if this is degrading our ability to sort of be human the more we interact with these lifelike technologies. Yeah, if it isn't degrading it yet, it will. It absolutely will the more that we do that. Although you could program for reciprocity, right? You could say, because we don't don't want to start treating people the way we treat these machines that don't actually require any reciprocity. They don't require that we exhibit empathy, uh, nothing like that. And so that could spill over into human beings. But you could program it. You could could program Alexa to say, what's the magic word or stuff like that. I think that would piss people off. I I don't know that it would be popular. You're preaching to the choir here. I mean, so I consider uh, the current age of technology as the sort of candy age like they're just giving us candy whatever we want they give it to us i think there's a meat and potatoes age that's coming where and i hope so you know i really hope because i would much prefer that our machines require some sort of empathy uh, in order to interact with us you think of that uh rosie the robot there i mean aside from sort of at this point the pretty offensive gendered uh, <laughs> mannerisms that are like projected onto her where she's she's dressed like a maid and she has this sassy attitude. But you know, one thing I do like about that robot uh, and maybe is prescient is the idea that she doesn't just do what you say. She's got attitude. If you treat Rosie wrong, she will get in your face, right? Mm-hmm. And that's a, that's a pretty advanced, I think, kind of behavior from a, a machine that's that's designed essentially to be a slave to human beings. Right. So I, I want to talk about another thing that uh, occurs in your work and sort of backtrack to something you said earlier, that yes, we build 
robots so that they can interface with us. And so they are probably a certain scale and they do certain things. They they interact and interface humanly, uh, as humanly as possible. And even in our imagination, when we imagine bad robots, they're either our size or bigger. Uh, and But, uh, you know, I was really intrigued by small things. This is a story you wrote in an anthology that I think you edited uh, of writers all just sort of tackling robot uh, uprisings uh, in different ways. But you talked about nanomachines, machines that nobody can see or, as you point out, even smell as they go into your nose. I mean, what would happen if that was the way in which we ran into some kind of pushback from robots? Yeah, I mean, well, that's, you know, that's an area of of robotics where you sort of just get into creating a potential biohazard. (laughs) It's not the sort of traditional like, oh, there's an evil AI that's that's plotting to destroy humanity. Um, It's just, wow, you're making something that is really grappling with the forces of creation, right? Because you're manipulating matter on a nanoscale or on a molecular scale. And, you know, the idea of that, the gray goo scenario where, you know, those sorts of uh, robots start self-replicating and turning everything into copies of themselves. (laughs) I mean, that's pretty terrifying, but it's more like a natural disaster in my mind than it is kind of, you know... I think what's really scary about the robot uprising is the idea that, you know, your enemy is not just this unthinking machine, but, you know, maybe you deserve it, right? (laughs) You're being judged ethically and potentially, you know, punished for it. And so I think, you know, that's what's really fun to write about in terms of um, science fiction with with robot uprisings and AI. Yeah, I'm not a speculative fiction writer, but I did write a piece during the pandemic where a bunch of robots – are trying to talk to human beings about like how badly they're handling the pandemic. You know, and at one point, one of the robots says to the human beings, "You're being killed by a disease that can be destroyed by soap and water." You know this. You know, and and it's like, why can't you do this better? Why can't you do climate better? I mean, that might be one of the possible reactions robots have to us if they ever figure out that who they are and who we are is. Why do we mess stuff up so badly? I mean, that's actually a big area of study. So, you know, um, NASA is particularly interested in, you know, allowing astronauts in orbit to perform a lot of work by having basically being in charge of a lot of semi-autonomous robots. And one of the most important skills that a robot can have is to recognize when it needs human help or when it can help a human do whatever they're doing better. And so judging humans and being and realizing, hey, you know what? You're not so good with the screwdriver. Why don't you just let me take <laughs> over this task? You know, that's actually a big area of study. And, and it's a way for, you know, for us to cooperate with robots in an right. efficient way. And, and I, I'm guessing that you therefore liked, for example, if, assuming you saw it, the movie Robot and Frank, which is, you know, about a robot assisting an elderly man. The elderly man turns out to be have his own little streak of sociopathy uh, into which he enlists the robot. But this is that's the more cooperative. How can I help you relationship? Yeah, well, Robot and Frank is a is an amazing movie, and I mean, what it's what I love about science fiction really is how this technology can can really serve as a metaphor for all these different very human things. And Robot and Frank is is about you know forgetting. It's about dementia and Alzheimer's, and and a robot can forget everything that it wants to know just by pushing a button, right? And uh, and so just, yeah, that, I mean, it's such a sweet movie whenever you start to realize that that's what it's really about. And, you know, there's a lot of movies where I think that um, the technology serves as this metaphor that's just can be really touching by the end. 
So uh, we're coming towards the end of our conversation, although I could talk to you for a really long time about this. You know, I've heard you mention, I think what you refer to as the DuckTales ending. Uh, You could also call it the cat in the hat ending, right? That there's chaos, uh, and then somehow or other the old sense of normal gets restored. We go back to normal. Things get worked out and settled down. And to me, that's one of the sort of lies that some speculative fiction tells us, right? I mean, it seems to me more likely that we are constantly learning to live with new realities, that we can maybe adjust these new realities. But the notion that we're going to get back to normal, and I see it even in the response to the pandemic, right? We got BA4 and BA5 variants and people going, oh, no, we're going to get back to normal now. No, forget about getting back to normal. Figure out what reality is now. And and I wonder if that's a problem with the speculative fiction about robots. Well, I mean, for me, I I agree with you completely there. I think that technology and robots in particular are change, right? And humanity can kind of absorb a certain amount of change, like a certain rate, you know? So you're thinking of that delta. And if it gets too big, then we we fail to adapt. And and that's the end, right? And that's the true apocalypse or dystopia, you know, end of the world as we know it. But if the delta is small enough, if the rate of change is small enough, then yes, we keep adapting to this new world that, that keeps appearing. And, and really, human beings are the wild card. It, the technology a lot of times arrives before humans are able to adapt to it. You know, I'm thinking of like autonomous cars. So uh, the technology is there for it. Right now, society seems to be okay with about 30 or 40,000 people dying in cars every year. Uh, human caused, but what are they going to be comfortable with from an autonomous car? Is it zero? You know, is it one? Are we going to slowly get used to the idea that people get hurt in accidents with autonomous vehicles? And so, like, who can say, right? Uh, who who knows? And so that human element and our ability to adapt to change, I think that really throttles the kind of technology that shows up and the kind of what you write about speculatively in, in science fiction. And and how do you keep that realistic? And and so, you know, the human wild card is really, uh, to me, it's the most interesting thing to think about because um, the technology just keeps showing up and, and becoming more and more, you know, better and better. So, Right. And the more you know about humans, the more you know that what everybody's attitude is going to be is going to be, you know who needs a self-driving car? You do. You do. You do. That guy over there, he needs a self-driving car. I don't need a self-driving car. I need everybody else to be in cars that are behaving more more rationally because I'm rational. That actually, that goes for jetpacks, especially. (laughs) A jetpack is always a great idea if you're the only one in a jetpack. But as soon as everybody else has a jetpack, you know. You right. better start getting armored shutters for your windows. Use your turn signal, jetpack <laughs> user. All right, Dan- <laughs> Daniel H. Wilson, it's been great to talk to you. I've loved discovering your work. I'm about to plunge into Clockwork Dynasty. I want robot sword fights. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks so much, Colin. And to the rest of you listening, I hope you enjoyed this show. Uh, we're going to do some more. If I had a jetpack, the first thing that I'd do is fly above the gridlock and come to you. Peek into the windows on Fifth Avenue.